you know, that is how we become better servants to the public, I think, to let art seep in, to take art and make things as beautiful as we can, and then to share it with as many people and as many systems as possible. Welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I am your host, Bon Ku. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. I am a huge fan of her. She is a pediatrician, mom to two boys, and the chief medical officer for Spoonful One. Wendy is an author, a prominent advocate of evidence-based medicine, and has devoted her career to pediatric prevention efforts. Dr. Swanson was the founder and chief of digital innovation at Seattle Children's Hospital and has continued to be an important thought leader online for over a decade. Wendy and I talk about how we can design our immune system by introducing diverse foods, using social media for public health, and the role of creativity in medicine. I'm still in shock by the news that this humble podcast made Fast Company's list of nine podcasts help you be more creative. I appreciate everyone who reached out to us like Dr. Jay Baruch and congratulated us on Twitter. Thank you for the comment on Apple Podcasts by Ginger MW, a UX designer who says, it feels like a flashlight illuminating one more clear step forward in this unknown out of control system. That is the best way that you can support this show by going to Apple Podcasts, giving us five stars, leaving us a comment. It's currently the only platform that allows this to happen. And we just love it when you reach out to us on social media and by email, continue to do that. We read every comment. Thank you for making this podcast a successful one. And now here's my conversation with Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson, thanks for being on Design Lab. Oh my gosh, it's my total privilege. Thank you. I was doing my research on you and I learned that you played the oboe in high school and you were pretty good at the oboe. Yeah. Oboe is like, isn't that one of the most difficult instruments to play? <laughs> yeah, I like that this is where we're opening. Uh, yeah, it's a double reed instrument. So like a bassoon, which is the other one, or an English horn, which is kind of a derivation of an oboe. It is, yeah. But it's also the reason I instrument. What? How did you choose that? Oh, I chose it. So my mom was a professional musician and forced me. She was a pianist and forced me to take piano from her. And then at fifth grade, in a very age appropriate way, I kind of went. It was like full on anarchy. I was like, "You can't be my teacher anymore." And she's like, "You will play an instrument." So we went to the orchestra, and I heard the oboe tune the orchestra, and then I heard the I think the kind of fry ridden grassy wooden sound of an oboe and really liked it. And then she was thrilled because it was so difficult. So that's how I that's how I chose it. But it was a pretty serious part of my middle school, high school years. And yeah. at one point. You were doing a lot of performing arts because at one point yeah. I learned that you actually took off a of high school to do like performing wow. arts. I can't believe you found all this. Yes, I did take uh, half of my ninth grade year. I did it remote, basically before we knew how to do remote. And I was in the Minneapolis Children's Theater. I was the uh, understudy to Pippi Longstocking. So I was Pippi Longstocking's too. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was good. Yeah, I did grow up doing a lot of performing performance, which I think is, as we'll talk about is really helped me understand how to be hopefully a better and bigger servant to public health, right. Of just recognizing and being really comfortable in front of large audiences. 
So I first met you way back in 2015. I was a big fan on Twitter, but there's this conference that you and I have attended a lot, Stanford MedX, run by the great Dr. Larry Chu. And there's this workshop you did, and I'm going to just read what the title of the workshop was. It's an interactive workshop that will take you through the creative process of media creation for health. And you did it with Mike Evans and Joyce Lee. Yeah. And I, it was one of the most impactful workshops that I ever attended. Because for me, I was like thinking a little bit about like, how do you use social media? It's all very confusing. And I think in academia, there is this real kind of like distrust of it at that time. But yeah, you were still one is. of the, yeah, <laughs> about, yeah, still is. Yeah. yeah. But you were one of like the OGs of social media <laughs> using these digital tools. I mean, you started a blog back in. 2009 is that right. right like the that's probably right. the first blog for a hospital that's right and I was yeah. like curious to know like why what compelled you to start doing this was it your oboe career or <laughs> why did you start getting into using no, these I, different tools for communication thanks yeah no so well, it wasn't the oboe but I think my comfort in being like I was saying and translational was always something I wanted to do when I studied bioethics at Penn when I kind of, I blended my medical school education with a bioethics education. And at that time I was really curious about TV and I was curious about how at the time when Katie Kirk would go on the Today Show in the morning and say something about healthcare, like how did it change someone's kind of consumption of healthcare, right? How did they interact with their nurse or doctor or um, surgeon in a different way based on the information they got? So I was, I was really smitten with understanding what did the media do to medicine? What did medicine do to the media? So when I left residency and I did a little, I did it, I had an amazing mentor in residency, a man, Dr. John Neff, who had been part of the original team at CDC in the eradication of smallpox. Mm -hmm. And he was just a big thinker. He'd been at Hopkins and then he was at Seattle Children's as the chief medical officer for years, but he had this really gentle way of helping me. Like he was always like, Wendy Sue, you don't have to get everything done in the first two years of your career. <laughs> He's like, you've got this whole way, but he helped me really understand and recognize that I could interact with media in a hopefully deeply responsible way and contribute. And then, it, it, so it was an interest when I left training, but I went and practiced primary care for three years full-time. And I had my two kids during that time, right after residency. And then literally like Facebook just like plopped on my lap. I was a super early when it was just in the back then, 2007, 2008, it was just in the education system. And then yeah. Facebook went public or went to public users. And I started using it right away. And I was on bed rest with my second son. Uh, and it was during the election leading up to the election of 2008. And I was like going crazy. Like I was just obsessed about Obama getting elected. And like I was I was just, and I was on bed rest. Like I was going nuts. And all of a sudden I looked at Facebook and I thought, wait a second, <laughs> like I can, I don't have to go on TV. I can use this whole new tool to not only share what I know as a pediatrician and my journey and translate health stuff, but to learn what other people were thinking in more real time. And it was this huge result for me. That was a place that I needed to start thinking about my career. And so that's when I approached Seattle Children's and said, what if you paid me to write a mommy blog? <laughs> and started trying to do that. I love this quote that I found. You said, I use media as a tool. It's like a stethoscope. And there's so many different tools that you use. Your Twitter feed was voted one of the best Twitter feeds in 2000, way back in 2013 by a Time Magazine. And, but you do it in a way that's very like intelligent. 
And, but there are a lot of doctors that don't do that. And there's a lot of doctors in media who I think, I don't know what's the right word. I want to try to be gentle here, but other quacks, you know, like, yeah. and like how, and that, and that was a little bit of my kind of like reluctance to go on social media and do regular forms of media. And what were some of like the challenges of being like this public face and voice out there? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I think that I was talking to a a colleague who was a former, I was, I used to be his mentor, but now he's skyrocketed past me in his media career. And I was saying, you, when you do anything first, I mean, you were joking about me being an OG, but I mean, in 2009, when I started a blog for Seattle Children's, people really sincerely laughed at me. I mean, kind of, I think there was this impression that I was going to throw my career away. And yet I saw it very clearly and, and with a crispness that I was in clinic, I was seeing 25, 30 patients a day, moms and dads would come in and we'd talk and I'd tell narrative stories or I'd help them understand data. And it was so clear that when I was kind of layering anecdotes and data together and just being myself, that they began to trust. And when I was also really, hopefully being very clear about what I didn't know, right? It was creating a, a way for us to have great rapport and help them on their journey with their children. And when I first did it, in the sense of, you know, I did it one layer at a time. I mean, I just started the blog. I wrote a, a purpose and goals document for the hospital where I took the mission of the hospital and said, like, how can I serve the mission of the hospital by, at the time, what I really wanted to do was dismantle the mistrust around vaccine science and safety. Yeah. Interesting today. But regardless, I guess the thing is that it wasn't so much the docs online at that time were quacks, to your point. It was more that the public was, I mean, Mercola was around, like there were people that were talking mm. about, at that time, Jenny McCarthy had recently gone on Oprah. She'd gone on Larry King Live. She told these narratives about mommy instinct, about how she felt and what she saw in front of her. And she ultimately did change your job and my job and every other practitioner mm. in public health's life forever because she created a nidus of of distrust ultimately in the profession and in, in our recommendations. And so for me, it was in the beginning, what was hardest is that when you, when you do something first, people think, particularly when you use media as a tool to your question, it's that people think you want attention. As One, 100%. Yeah. I wanted impact but I didn't necessarily want attention. And what's weird about media as a tool in public health is that you do need attention to recognize and understand that you're having impact. And so you can get trapped in those little loops of views or does something go viral or how many people watch and how many people share it. And it can be a really ugly journey at times. It can, I've been attacked and cyberbullied and threatened and oh, um, humiliated gosh. by people many times over, over the years. And so, and I didn't, I have a, I think I started with a very thin skin. I'm a very emotional person in general, and I've developed quite an understanding about how to both have colleagues distrust my intent and mission. Mm -hmm. And that's gone now. I think people recognize and understand that when I wrote 800 blogs and did thousands of YouTubes and stayed with it for over a decade, it wasn't like I was looking for attention. I was looking for establishing the role of social tools and media in, into medicine itself and into academics as well, which we can talk about. But, but anyway, so I think, I don't know, it's been, but you know, there are, the world is crowded now mm -hmm. from clinicians online. And that was always my goal. 
And now we've got doctors like dancing on TikTok and you can look at it and think like, oh, it's kind of stupid. I mean, sometimes I'm like, good grief, like the formulaic stuff, like I'm not on TikTok dancing because no one really wants to see the 47 year old doing that. But I think that it, what we wanted, right, was this deep civic engagement from our clinicians and to use the kind of the democracy of Brian Vardabedian was the first person that I ever heard say that of just the kind of democratization of media, that social allowed it, not that I had to have a position at the Today Show, but that I could from live from Madison, Wisconsin, (laughs) tell you anything I needed to tell you, right? And that really changed our opportunity as public health minded physicians and nurses and social workers in general to share our journeys and experiences, but to, to go past the number of people we could see in real time in a typical day. And so I used to, like I said, see 24, 30 patients a day and gradually trimmed back my days in practice because some days I'd get a hundred thousand views on something. And it's not that it was the views that made me excited. It was just the idea that, wait, I'm reaching that many families with the same message about car seats or mm-hmm. SIDS or vaccines or new data that was out on a formula recall. It was just like, how could I avoid this opportunity? And how could I have taken an oath in medicine and not use these kind of microphones in some ways? So, Well, I mean, partly why I do this podcast was you planted the seeds back in 2015 and really kind of gave me the confidence (laughs) through that workshop to go out there and go, Hey, this is a, a legitimate and a impactful medium to talk about science and public health issues. So Thank you for for that. Of course, that's my pleasure. I mean, that was the goal, right? That I think so many more, even now, clinicians, right? I mean, I I think that our electronic health record, and I have pitched to Judy Faulkner here in Madison, Wisconsin, of like, let me socialize Epic. Like, let me let a regular doc in any place and in any field kind of broadcast or narrowcast to a subset or the panel of patients that they have the privilege of caring for. Like, we don't need to do things over and over again again, when the advice we're giving often is not personalized, sometimes advice really is personalized, but when we're making recommendations, even in regards to something like the vaccine, I heard you in in, in a couple of your podcasts, you know, talk of course with your, you're imploring people to get vaccinated. And yet we know that our individual relationships with our clinicians are more meaningful than me going on the news, right. With some, you guys not knowing me. And uh, I think we're still going to get there. I believe that increasingly, as we manage populations of patients and families as clinicians, we will, we will use more and more tools like social tools to resonate, to connect, to be functioning in more real time, and to be listening in more real time in a way that's not so taxing to clinicians and the care teams too. And we'll get there. Right now, we're still using electronic records. We're, we're increasing transparency for patients and families through things like my chart or write these yeah. or these. And those that's great. But I think and open notes, right, which I've just been a huge champion over the years of my son had surgery yesterday. And oh, my gosh. Yeah. Is he OK? I got to tell you, he is OK. His mother, oh. I mean, is not. <laughs> You know, when he wheeled away, it was the first time that my my child has ever gone into an operating room under the care of anesthesiologists and surgeons. And man, I'll tell you, having been a, a primary care doctor in practice for 12 years and is like being in the health system and being in so many high stakes environments, I it is just remarkably difficult to get healthcare. <laughs> it's bad a lot of the times. My care, our care yesterday was fantastic. But you know, when we get the pathology back from this surgery, which is really what we're waiting on, and the surgeon was saying to me, she said, she said, Wendy, you know, you're you're gonna probably get it before me. And I said, Oh, heck yeah, I am. I've got a notification on my phone and it's gonna beep and I'm gonna log in as 
fast as humanly possible. And we used to think that was bad, right? We, we were scared that patients and families would get our own data faster. And, and so I only bring that up in that, like, I can't wait for those path reports to come back. I'm sitting here with my phone 24 seven waiting on it, just like any other patient and family who wants access to understand. And we'll get there. We're nudging along. And I think your journey in your journey in media, your inventive, creative solutions, and even getting vaccines out to the world and these things will all nudge the rest of the system forward. And I believe that however dopey it was to start a mommy blog, I do believe I nudged clinicians and medicine forward by formalizing it in a health system. I mean, I could have just hung a shingle up on the internet, but I, I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in the backdrop and presence of the rigor that's required in academic institutions. And I wanted to be responsible to those tenants. Well, I hope those uh, path results come back soon and hope Thanks. all the best. And, okay. and I know that's experience of you know, a lot of my patients who are on open notes and yeah. um, waiting in the ER, they get their COVID result faster than I do. And they're like, yeah. hey, doc, it's like negative. <laughs> can I go now? <laughs> or I got my lab results. Can I go? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. okay, you got it before I did. That's pretty, yeah. pr- pretty cool. But what a great thing, right? There's awkward moments where that's difficult and creates a little turbulence, but we know that most systems that turn on open notes, right, are these are considered non-events. And what an amazing thing for us to start saying the patients and families, data, tissue, pathology, radiology results, doesn't matter, notes from people who are who have the privilege of taking care of them, they're, they're owned by patients and families and those who they choose to care for them, not mm. by this patriarchal system, right, that, yeah. that kind of domineered in the past. So regardless, I think our work in media and learning how to use these tools and helping other clinicians to think about how they practice using them will allow us hopefully 10, 20 years from now that it being an emergency medicine physician like you or a general pediatrician like me, that our job descriptions will be different because mm-hmm. of how we can communicate with the public or with individuals, even through tools like digital tools that will emulate the things we like about Marco Polo, my favorite social channel or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. I was curious to know, get your thoughts on how we as doctors and public health folks have failed during this pandemic? You know, I I haven't been practicing during the pandemic. And for me, having spent a decade, and I'm not exaggerating, a decade before COVID-19 came to the United States or in the world on vaccine science and safety and vaccine hesitancy, it's been actually disorienting and, and kind of quieting to me to watch, to be actually let, you know, we'll get to what I do currently in my work on a typical day. But to watch the world take it on and to, you know, for example, I used to do a flu shot selfie every year. And I used to say, yeah, we get these buttons when we get a flu shot and everybody, you know, the doctors and nurses and phlebotomists put them on their lab codes. But if you just went to Facebook and put up a flu shot selfie and told everybody in your network, your personal network or your professional network that you believe you should get a flu shot, we, we would change our understandings, right, of, mm-hmm. of protection that vaccines afford us. So I found it troubling and somewhat hopeful when clinicians, for example, in the health space started to get vaccinated, I wrote a whole Twitter uh, thread on this, but all of a sudden, everybody was so proud. The healthcare providers were all getting their vaccines in December and January, and they were posting all their selfies and, and they were saying it was for vaccine hesitancy. And I got to tell you, man, they were never doing these flu shot selfies before and they were never, and, and, and usually, right, vaccines 
uh, there's a glut of vaccines. Usually mm-hmm. we have so many vaccines available. We're just helping people get them um, because we need, make them convenient. We make sure people understand they're safe and effective, especially. But it was such an unusual high stakes environment where we were all terrified. We'd been in the shutdown. The vaccine rollout had occurred at the speed that it had in remarkable ways. And the only people that were getting them were healthcare workers, which is, yeah. was a very defendable decision by the CDC and the ASAP. But those of, I wasn't taking care of anybody. So I was just watching everybody around me in the healthcare, get their vaccines and kind of gloat. Right. And I remember just watching these, but like everybody was so happy to post their selfies under the guise that they were going to help with hesitancy. And I actually looked at it as someone who at that point, I believe is really expert in vaccine hesitancy communication after doing it academically and in, in, in the wild for 10 years it made me feel that many people would feel distanced from their healthcare providers, not an increased level of trust in the vaccines because they didn't have the access to get it themselves. Yeah. I remember reading your Twitter thread and it actually, I paused and did not post one of those vaccine selfies. And oh. I thought it was very thoughtful. I was like, oh, wow, this, this is how other people are, are feeling. Here's another take on it. And thank you. Thank you for doing that. That was it's really well, it's not that insightful. I didn't want you to do no, it. No, but it, it was just like, I did not have that empathy yeah, for yeah, yeah. No, other just, people and did not I think just, about what I was communicating. Yes. I think people were communicating a lot of different messages in it. Mm-hmm. And I think those of us who were so scared to be in the world, my my family, my, my husband was going in and out of, he's a, an academic physician going in and out of the hospital. And meanwhile, in low risk environments, he's a, he's a pediatric radiologist and coming back and being with my children and my mom's immunocompromised. And, you know, and I just kept thinking like, wait, I, we can't even really protect ourselves from that coming and going and other colleagues and friends that I would see from time to time who are physicians. And anyway, so it just felt, but I, so that was one, I, I think that I remember I met with a number of healthcare leaders now before vaccine rollouts, kind of in the in the late winter uh, or the late 2020, early 21 saying we need to use influencers. Like let's use the, let's use the economy of influencers to build trust in vaccination, that it'll provide freedom and wellness, that safety has been investigated and that this rollout is not an experiment. I mean, I had all these kind of like, let's not wait until it doesn't work. And we've got a hesitant population. Mm-hmm. And I even thought about starting a company in that PR space to try to kind of move ideally even governmental nonprofit money into influencers to kind of spokesperson what I'd been doing for 10 years as a physician, but to say, let's put this in like the beauty industry does, or let's put this in my boys. I have 12 and 14 year old boys. They're like YouTube in on their Minecraft. They're served up all this crap and they could be served up all these great messages in anticipation, right? For these different rollouts. And I didn't do it. I didn't start a company. I didn't know exactly how to, nobody was all that excited about it. And then here we are right? Here we are with an enormous challenge because a large segment yesterday, for example, was just announced that three quarters of American adults, right, have had at least one dose of the vaccine. And it's, where are we? It is September. I mean, I think we don't need, we've had great availability of vaccination now for months. And of course, we all know that the peril that we we face because of Delta and that we are, Delta is here because of unvaccinated pockets and individuals and unvaccinated sectors of this population, including, especially, right, including the Southeastern portion of the United States and Idaho, for example, like there's some stories that we've been hearing this last week or two. And I think we could have done much better. I I would have taken any call from any government official, from any vaccine manufacturer, from any PR company, from any news organization to help 
as a physician who understands it, but nobody wanted to think that way. I mean, and I'm irritated and frustrated that we ultimately didn't even, you know, one of the things I was saying is that Facebook, you know, and Instagram, I very rarely, unfortunately post on Instagram, but anytime I say anything about COVID, right, the little bubble at the bottom pops up where you can click on the rote message that drives you right to a stale message about vaccine yeah. science and safety. Instead, right, we could verify clinicians who understand healthcare communication and vaccine science and safety. We could change the algorithm to allow those voices to be served up in different ways, not rely on them having the media savvy, right, or a viral message, but instead of just putting up a blanket slap message, right, we could change who is heard. And, you know, it's complicated because of amendments and free speech and algorithms. But at the same time, I I do think social media companies can continue to do more to elevate the voice of science and to help create campaigns and resources to those to make even better storytelling messages, right, that do really well and resonate and help people understand. And there's so many nuances to the message. And in order to be heard on social media, you have to be loud and almost a little antagonistic and then... In, in well, the- or you have to be talking about like, I mean, honestly, like either you're talking about sex or penises yeah. or vaginas, or you're screaming, right? Because you hate somebody or hate yeah. something. It goes very well to be ex- like extreme, right? It's very popular to myth bust, even though we know for public health, it's not good to do that because people can't remember what the myth was and what the truth is. And then I watch some of our very esteemed and really helpful, I think, OBGYNs right now, when you think about what's happened in Texas and the opportunity for women to end a pregnancy or terminate a pregnancy or not anymore mm-hmm. in Texas, you know, we're really relying on these very outspoken voices in that space. But sometimes I watch those voices who can be, I, I, I think, very not just antagonistic, but kind of lewd and almost unprofessional. It works for a following, but does it work from a standpoint of changing public health? And I, I, I hope so. But it, if you're practicing the art of getting people to use a car seat or like you using or not using the ED in, in the right way or whatever it is, it, it's going to be difficult. I don't, I don't want to be that. That's not who I am. Yeah. I don't, I like profanity a lot. I don't use it in, social media. <laughs> in my real life. It's about my kids <laughs> of the swear jar and I'm notorious culprit. Oh, like, every time. I swear my kids remember it and they'll repeat yeah. it over and they'll like, yeah, I remember that yeah, last week. Oh yeah. I'm always, and- <laughs> but I don't want to be offensive to people either. Like I like language. I like profanity, but I don't, but I'm not going to do it on my Twitter handle where I'm representing. Yeah. I think, you know, social media in a way as a part of the health system that I'm, you know, I want Judy to call me back and say, Wendy Sue, let's figure out a way to more rapidly socialize the electronic health record. Like she hasn't, I want her to, she's heard me speak. She knows my case, but it hasn't yet been a priority. And I, but I think that's how we're going to do it at a system level too. So, and I think we could have done just as an example, if you, I mean, I don't mean to pick on Epic, but using the Epic health record, if every clinician in this country was able to send more personalized real-time updates of what was happening during the pandemic, Mm. their patient and families. um, would have had a better understanding. They would have been less dependent on media and they would have likely used health systems in different ways. Even when you think about the lags in screening mammography or screening colonoscopies, right? But we're gonna have increased bumps, right? Of cancer diagnoses, for example, with decreased screening over the years because people have been too scared to go in when they they haven't probably needed to be scared to go Mm. in. The system was there to protect them and to keep them safe even from COVID. So anyway. I think, I think that's where we're going over time. In doing my research on you, you've had probably a dozen jobs at least. And one <laughs> of your most recent draw- jobs is that you're at a company called Spoonful One. 
Can you tell me about that company and what your role is there? Yeah, yeah. So I, when I was at Seattle Children's in the end, I was the chief of digital innovation, which is a little department I'd created to build software and make content and, you know, well past the blog. I mean, we created technology in the health system and brought in startups and things. And then about four years ago, almost exactly, I was approached by some colleagues through through my mentor and friend, Dr. Eric Topol, um, to talk about work, working in food allergy protection and prevention. And I met with Dr. Karine Doe, who runs the Allergy and Immunology Center at Stanford, and she had created a consumer-based solution, to, pretty simple actually, but to get all the common allergy foods in a convenient way for moms and dads to just get them in the diet. And, and the reason being that back in the year 2000, pediatricians like me, I was in medical school at the time, but we were told by the American Academy of Pediatrics and other groups and allergists around the world, hey, we have this food allergy now epidemic in the sense yeah. that food allergy rates specifically in children were doubling. So in the 80s, 90s, and 2000, we saw a doubling of the number of children with an IgE-mediated physician-diagnosed food allergy. You can't explain that from genetics alone. There was something about the modern environment that was setting us up. And at the time, in the year 2000, we told families, don't eat peanut till three. Don't eat egg until age two. Peanuts were like kryptonite. Yeah. And peanuts were kind of the celebrity. I always call them the celebrity of food allergy in that. And so we, we took them all out of the diet. Food allergies continued to rise and actually accelerated after we did that. And then a very d- deep creative insight came from Dr. Gideon Lack, who was spending time both in Israel and the United Kingdom. And he started to realize that these kids in Israel were chomping on bamba, a little peanut crunchy snack as an early food. And the kids in England weren't doing that. And the kids in Israel who were chomping on bamba in early life weren't developing peanut allergy at the same rate as the kids in Israel or excuse me, in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So we went out and and did a very um, well-designed perspective study where he evaluated at-risk children um, starting as young as four months of age. Eczema is the number one risk for developing food allergies, which I'll explain why. But he started letting, he basically said, okay, we're going to randomize it. We'll put a control group in and we're going to put an intervention group in. And as young as four months of age, we're going to make them eat peanut every at least three times a week all the way through infancy, toddlerhood, preschool years, until they go off to kindergarten. And what they found is that those kids that were constantly and repeatedly being exposed to peanut in their tummy, that they were 80% less likely to develop a peanut allergy. 80%? Yeah. 80% less likely to do so. And, And the philosophy that was established was called the dual allergen exposure hypothesis. The concept that it, you know, eczema is the number one risk factor because peanut, like most of the common allergens, is really what we call lipophilic. It's a protein that's attached to a fat. So nuts are really fatty, right? Fish, shellfish, even soy, sesame, any of the most, those are the most common food allergens, dairy products, for example, egg. Now, the reason that matters is that if the protein that talks to the immune system is stuck on a little fat, it sits in the environment for a really long time. It doesn't degrade and go away. You know, you and I eat an apricot, we throw it in the yard, it it degrades, it doesn't stick around. That protein that talks to the immune system is just around. But you and I chuck a peanut in and into the, you know, corner of the playroom and that peanut's going to sit around for a long time. And if kids have open skin, like with eczema, it's a dry skin rash in kids, their immune system or their body basically is first exposed to peanut through the skin. 
And what we realize is that when your body is exposed, for example, to proteins through the skin first and not through the tummy first, it tends to be a sensitizing process versus those kids that were in that leap trial, the peanut study that Dr. Lack detailed, those kids were constantly getting peanut in the stomach. Even if they were getting exposed to through the skin, the immune system and the gut basically immune tolerance was being generated because they were constantly getting fed mm. it in the tummy in the way that the body is designed to learn about food. And so that was the beginning of it. And Dr. Nadeau at Stanford studied about 450 infants and children, and she didn't feed just peanut. She had a, a really, and she maintains a strong belief as an MD, PhD, that the immune system flourishes with diversity. So like, mm -hmm. we know we don't want to overuse antibiotics. We don't, that eating all those foods together. So she fed kids a combination of 10 different allergens and fed some kids a single allergen and fed some kids just two allergens at once, fed them all for a year and then drew their blood a year later and found that the kids, it didn't matter if they were eating just a little bit or even a, a larger amount of 10 different allergens at once, those kids' immune systems were totally turned down, right? They were less allergic in its profile. So she created Spoonful One to say, we cannot wait. First off, this is not just about peanut. Sure, peanut's the number one food allergy in children, but when you look at children and adults in total, over 90% of people have an allergy to something other than peanut. So mm. the immune system's protein specific. So yeah, Feed your kid peanut really early in life, but feed your kids soy and sesame and fish and shellfish and, and wheat, get it all in early in life. So that gut, that tummy, 70% of your immune system, believe it or not, is in your GI tract. So you want, when that baby's growing up and developing, you want all those allergens in constantly. So the bottom line is when I was at Seattle Children's, I ended up going 50% to work at the startup as the chief medical officer, because I was kind of done talking about working at a startup and, and innovating. And I stayed in academia, you know, for two years, I did both jobs where I was was kind of going back and forth on airplanes. You and I were talking before we started yeah. reporting about our insane. I mean, I was on an airplane almost every week for a couple of years. And, and then when, when I moved back to the Midwest a couple of years ago, I, I went full time. And, and the goal here is twofold is that we not only changed medical guidelines when it came to feeding babies, we reversed them, right? 180 yeah. reversal. It was very unusual, right? Like I mean, when else do we do that in medicine? Yeah. We used to put babies on their tummy. Then we said, oh, put them on their back, right? And there, but other than that, it isn't that you usually say, put the brake on. And then 10, 10 years later, somebody says, no, wait, hit the gas, <laughs> right? I mean, so my goal in moving to Spoonful One was to do a couple of things, to really accelerate the knowledge around the world that not only do we not want you to hold off on these foods, but that you we wanted, like vaccines, we wanted moms and dads to have the confidence that early intervention, that introduction, that doing something was actually extremely protective as opposed to waiting and being scared and standing back. And so- um, I mean, it's like you can actually design your immune system by introducing yeah, exactly. foods, diverse foods at an early age. You can actually design your kid's immune system, which is yeah, crazy. So there's no question, Bond, that you design your immune system in early life. The immune system is learning and thinking and growing in a way that's probably very different than you and me. You and I should eat a diverse diet that includes all these different proteins. So 50% of food allergies develop in adulthood. But we don't have any prevention strategies for adults, yeah. probably that our skin barriers are a little broken down, high efficiency detergents probably allow our introduction to the world and our exposures to be really different. But no question to your point that from vaccination to letting your kid play in the dirt. I mean, there's a very famous study called the pasture study that evaluates ultimately basically living on a farm 
versus living in an urban environment. The kids that are growing up on the farm and surrounded by bacteria and fungus and gunk from the farm, right, are less likely to go on to develop allergies, allergic rhinitis, food allergies, eczema, or asthma. Just having a dog in the house when you're raising a baby, the dog is tracking in gunk from the yard and bacteria and fungus and all sorts of biodiversity. And that decreases the likelihood that your child goes on to develop allergic and atopic diseases. So yeah, I mean, I've never heard anybody say it that way. I love how you say it, that you do get to design your child's immune system. And what you want is you want to show your child the world, right? You don't want to show your child a corner in Brooklyn. You want to show your child food from Southeast Asia and food from Iceland and food from um, Europe and food from the United States. And, And you don't, even if your family doesn't eat a lot of XYZ, right? You may not eat shrimp in your home, but your child may want to eat shrimp later on. Yeah. And having that immune system know it and love it and get used to it over and over again. So anyway, so as the chief medical officer, I now sit in the home office all the time, which makes me crazy. We were also talking <laughs> about that. But my goal is to both help pediatricians, family practice docs, nutritionists really understand the science that Dr. Nadeau has has taught me. And then we're, we've launched in Target where I'm ultimately- we yeah, what, what are these products that, that you have? Because I, I went are, on, yeah, on so the website one, and there's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to be, not to be so markety, but Spoonful One is that Dr. Nadeau's science, right? So she did that experiment and she said, okay, let me take the top foods that account for nine out of 10 food allergies in kids. So there are 16 foods, for example, all the tree nuts, peanut, egg, milk, wheat, right? Two different kinds of fish, shrimp, all of that. Sesame is the number one growing allergy in the United Mm. States. And she said, let me take that at at kind of precise amounts of 30 milligrams, which means nothing, but it's a very small amount, but it was tested in her studies at Stanford. And Spoonful One is just a solution. It's it's like, I'm going to show you. Well, actually, let me show you a couple people who I sit with. Here, you guys can't see this because this is not, I understand this is audio, but I'm holding up a Dr. Fauci action figure. Um, and I my other favorite is RBG. Oh, R- uh, yeah, these people sit with me all day when I'm working, but no. So the she basically shows they're standing on a little spoonful one tub. So this is like a little tub of powder. And in the powder, there there's a scoop and it says, okay, every day, if you just in a pureed applesauce or in anything that you're ma- you make your own baby food, you buy baby food. I mean, any of the baby food you go and buy right now, unfortunately, it doesn't have any of these ingredients in it. We, yeah. All the food manufacturers took them out. So we're trying, I mean, I'm really desperately trying in this period of my working life, trying to change the food source in the United States and and around the world. So spoonful one comes in a little powder that you dump in your baby's diet every day, however you want. And then as they grow, there are little puffs and there are little crackers. And the goal is we don't know exactly how long you need to constantly expose kids to these common allergens, the the more, the better. But we do know that in infancy and in toddlerhood, feeding patterns can be really irregular. Every parent knows that. There are good feeding days, there are bad feeding days. So it it goes on to teenage years as well, like my son. I mean, I've got one kid who eats everything, (laughs) one kid who likes macaroni and cheese. I mean, like still. And I, they were raised in the same house and made by the same two people. Like doesn't, so, you know. So wait, I want to, so these products are cool, but you know, I'm Korean and I just yes. like, my parents did not have a sort of baby diet for me. I ate like yeah. kimchi and yeah, fish and kimchi. like all yeah. this stuff, like, yeah. like that's good. It, 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 but is this stuff better than just having a diverse well, diet that you just eat as a kid? Like you eat what your parents eat if they have a diverse yes. diet? That is a, without question, that is how I want baby. I mean, that is what the science says. And that is what pediatricians and nutritionists say to share the kind of beautiful diversity of food that is cultural and important. I mean, food is like 
spiritual, right? And yeah. cultural. And I feel really good when my babies are sleeping peacefully. I feel really good when I'm feeding my babies good food, right? I mean, it is like, it is as nurturers, right? It is very instinctive too. What we know though, unfortunately, is that even in a family who eats a lot of different foods, that what they feed their babies and toddlers doesn't end up to probably contain a lot of protein allergen diversity yeah. in a way that's super routine. Nobody knows, do you really need it three times a week or four times a week? I mean, Dr. Nadeau believes in the circadian rhythm in some ways of the immune system. And so with these small amounts, she's saying, just get in it every day, almost like a vitamin in that way. So that doesn't matter what you're serving at the table, do that too. But even if your kid's a little picky or doesn't feel like good every day, the immune system's seeing these proteins. And there's a study that after the LEAP trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, that was in 2015 when everything switched. The next year, another group led by Dr. Michael Perkins out of the United Kingdom published a study called the EAT trial. And in the EAT trial, they included six common allergens. So that included whitefish and egg and sesame and peanut and milk. And they fed babies that, you know, they asked moms and dads to get those six different common allergens in the diet at least two or three times a week. And only about 30% of parents could do it. And that was in a research yeah. trial, right? Because it's like real life, right? And, and, and so that's why I don't like that parents have to buy a product, but my goodness, the food source does not have these ingredients in it. And mm. if you are not intentional right now about getting tree nuts and peanut and fish and soy and sesame into your baby's diet, you're just to your point, missing the opportunity to design your baby's immune system in a smarter way. So the goal for us is get every shelf in U.S. grocery and every retail chain to start having this. So right now, Spoonful One's sitting at Target in not all the Targets, but in a couple hundred different Target stores around the United States. And we're moving into a bunch of grocery chains as well. And, you know, the goal is to say, hey, yeah, buy your pureed peaches and make your homemade goulash and feed your baby mashed up kimchi. Yeah. But then make sure every single day they get these proteins in early life. So that's, you know, a lot of education. We, we just started a, a trial. We're recruiting totally, you know, me and digital health. So I love digital health. We have a trial for babies called the intent study. And I do deeply care about people knowing about this. Go to the intentstudy.com. And you'll find it. Moms and dads all over the United States can enroll. And we're basically, you're either randomized to a control group where you just eat like regular and you're another half of the kids will get spent spoonful into their house and in the app they can basically log if they, what they eat during the day. And we're going to follow kids for 18 months and half of them are going to get spoonful one every day and half are just going to eat regularly. And we're also asking parents, when did they introduce peanut? How often do they keep it in the diet? And we're working with- So know, they can enroll in this trial just right now. by going on the website and, yes. and downloading so the you app. Do, yep. You do an eligibility to see if, yeah, your baby has to be four to six months of age when you start. And then you get in the trial, you go online, you download the app for free, you fill out informed consent right there. And then believe it or not, we built an API on the back end, which is the tech language for connection, where we give these little incentives. Like you fill out a questionnaire, we give you 25 bucks for filling out the questionnaire, which takes, you know, 10, 15 minutes, but we did it so that you could go directly to Venmo or PayPal. So you're in this trial, you're on your phone, half of you get spoonful one, half of you just tell us how you're feeding your baby. And every time you fill out a little questionnaire, you get a little like deposit in your PayPal and stuff. So I felt, I felt really so good. That's so cool. Us. But we're just starting recruitment. We would love babies all of the United States. And we want a third of those babies to have eczema because mm. we know those are probably the babies that stand to benefit the most from, to your words, designing your immune system early because their skin is open, right? And they're getting exposed to that environment, just being on planet earth. And so getting those proteins into those kids' tummies is probably more important than a child who doesn't have eczema. That is so cool. I got to tell my wife about that. She's an allergist. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Oh gosh, we're running out of time. So I think my final question is your journey has 
put you in so many different sectors. And I was wondering what role does creativity play in your career path? And if, if any at, at all. Oh, well, I, oh my gosh, you know, I think I'm so thirsty for a more creative life. But what you're doing so creative, <laughs> yeah. I, I would say. I yeah, mean, yeah. Creative I pursuits. I, yeah, I want it to be more creative. I think the number one reality is that every job I've had basically since 2009, I've kind of made up. <laughs> and that's not that's not because everything's wrong. It's just for me to be the person I needed to be like kind of, I always, when I teach social media, you've probably heard me say this, but I'm like that I talk, people talk a lot about your digital footprint in a very cautionary tale way. And yet the missed thing is the digital fingerprint. The idea that when you get to use social tools or you fill out your LinkedIn or you, you show the world in a really digital, unique way, who you are and what you care about and how they can help you solve the problems you think are important. And so I think making up a job, pitching it responsibly, aligning it with strategy and goals of organizations who can help compensate you is, is deeply important. And it shouldn't all be volunteerism. Making up departments, accelerating ideas throughout large organizations or even small ones is really important for public health and the system to change over time. And so in that sense, I think just designing my career um, over time from working in TV to working, doing my own podcast back in the day to the social tools, to, to building stuff has been great. And then even in my role with Spoonful One of making up the study and designing a digital health trial, I've never done that before. We did it with Duke Clinical Research Institute, but I think the children have this elasticity, right? They have this wide eye open and it's, and we, we pound it out of them. We know this from all sorts of data and beautiful talks even around the world that you can watch that as we grow up, we categorize everything. We limit the way that people think they can do and live and be and from love to empathy to to who they are as a professional. I'm very emotive. I I live my life in a very transparent way. Social media and I fit really well. We just did in the very beginning. But I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I think I love to borrow and steal from not just other industries, but nature and time outside. I mean, more than anything, Increasingly, I'm trying to build in white space into my days so that my brain, because I'm stuck and addicted to my phone and like these screens, right? That anyone out there, like we all are creative. We've stifled a lot of it, but it's just looking around in, in some of the talks that I give. I often talk about this quote from an IHI report where a CEO went around the healthcare organization and said to people, what rules are you breaking to do what's best for your patients? And, and people were breaking rules all the time. They were at the time when we didn't have electronic health, people were texting their patients and they were taping things together. And as you like, the whole maker movement is so amazing because it's just people making stuff up to make it better for them. And then the crowd sharing and peer to peer work where we share it with each other. But anyone can be an agent of new ideas by looking around. I mean, if the pizza delivery guy does something really well, or your kid hacks something together in a way you didn't think of, and you can apply it to whatever your work is, you're creating. Right. You, you make up your job. You add a job description. You pitch something to your boss. You advance something that you think is beautiful for more than yourself. Right. There you are in your creative life. And, you know, I love poetry. I love writing. I don't hardly ever read nonfiction except for work. I read all fiction on the side. Right now, I'm, I'm really committed to reading only basically reading women of color works of fiction back to back to back to back. And, you know, I'll tell you. I was on a, a medical board where someone was like, tell us what your best things you've read. And all these doctors wrote in about 
oh, they read this book about the history of this. And I said, I've just reread Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. And it's an amazing story for vaccines because it it talks about polio. Or I just read Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who's amazing. She's this Nigerian writer. And and she writes some of the, the most like prolific stories about women in the world in war-torn areas and in the United States from a kind of racial lens. And, you know, that is how we become better servants to the public. I think to let art seep in, to take art and make things as beautiful as we can, and then to share it with as many people and as many systems as possible. Well, thank you, Wendy Sue, for inspiring creativity in my own life and career and for being on the show. So good to reconnect. Yes. I can't wait to come to Philly. I was supposed to be there because the AAP was supposed to be in person. And I was going to beg basically to come look at your mobile vaccine unit. But next time I'm knocking on your door and please, please show it to me. I'm always so impressed with you and what you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. You can find Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson on Twitter. Just search her name at Wendy Sue Swanson and on Instagram at DR Wendy Sue Swanson and reach out to me on social media. I can be found on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U and on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U and remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.